If you've got your Bibles, open them to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, our passage this morning is very well known, but in there lies the risk because so many times passages that are so well known we come, become a little bit casual or complacent about, and that's really what the text is all about. It's about taking something that should be so profound, so important, and becoming casual about it. So um, that's really quite a relevant place for us to be um, as far as asking from the text to speak to us. So 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to begin at verse 17. And it's a fairly lengthy section. I'll read to the end of the chapter. So verse 17, Paul writes, For in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that some who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Excuse me. <clears throat> for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? You do not have houses in which to eat and drink, or you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you for this. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Father, thank you for your word. Father, it is a text of correction this morning that we read. And that challenges us. Because even though we're talking about another church, still there are things in it, Father, that speak to our hearts. So we ask that our minds would simply be open to everything you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage of Scripture, we're, of course, talking about communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, however you want to describe it. Um, reminding the Corinthian church of the really critical role that it has in their lives, but at the same time addressing them, addressing some of the issues, because in this matter, like in so many others, the Corinthians had problems. And so Paul's correcting those problems because, again, all in the context of the, the problems with this issue, adding to the divisions that were causing so much trouble in the church. And so what I want to do this morning is just speak briefly to the elements of the Lord's table, and do that often, and then look at the corrections the apostle offers, first as they apply to the Corinthians, and then as they apply to us. But before that, if I could, and Sophia, can I bother you for a glass of water, please? Thank you. Uh, before that, um, just something to speak to. I received a great email this week. And I love, I, love, I love feedback when people respond to what I've shared on, on Sunday morning. Thank you very much. Appreciate 
Um, and so this particular email began very nicely, which always makes me nervous. You know, when they begin nice, you never know what's going. But it was, not, it was a good email. And uh, the, the person said, Pastor, I really appreciate when you um, share things, and I appreciate the study that you put in, and I appreciate the background that you bring in from having lived in Greece and the language and all that. But, and well, the reason I liked it was that I was already thinking about this relative to my class, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But the person said, but isn't the Bible for all of us? I mean, shouldn't we all be able to read our Bibles and understand it? Why would God, you know, give us a Bible that you have to have that kind of either time to study or those kind of unique cultural insights? And I'm very knowledge, I mean, I'm very appreciative of the fact that God has blessed our family with some very unique opportunities. The opportunity to live in a Middle Eastern culture, the opportunity to have the exposure to the language that I've had. I mean, that's just a gift from God. That's you know, tremendous. Not everybody gets that. So how do, you, how do you factor that? That it's obviously beneficial to have those things, but isn't the Bible supposed to be for everybody? And I've been having that same thought in my mind about my class, like my Greek class, because I'm able to share with students a lot of techniques for studying and translating. But a lot of the stuff I offer is stuff they can't replicate unless they want to go live in Greece for four or five years, right? So I've been struggling with that idea. So that email, plus the issue I had, caused me to think through a lot of these things. And, and I came up with some things that I think will help. First um, is the understanding that um, most of what I find in Scripture when I'm reading through it, whether, you know, reading it in the Greek or whatever, um, was stuff that's already there. Very, very seldom have I found anything that was like, wow, you can't possibly see that in the English. Most of it's not like that. Most of it, I'm, I'm going through and I'm studying and I go, wow, look at that, you know, in, the, in, in my Greek Bible. And then I go to my English Bible and go, wow, it was already there. I just didn't see it. Right. And again, that's we have so many cultural biases, presuppositions, or we just read too fast and we, we go right over it. So that was the first thing that, that made me think, yeah, if we just slow down and look a little more carefully, if we're if we're conscious to the degree that we're able about the suppositions we bring to the text, which can be so huge because they're part of life, we grow up with it. Um, the other thing I thought, and this was a little bit kind of came out of nowhere is that, yeah, it is true that God gave us his word um, in, a, in a culture so drastically different than ours. And yeah, there's a risk there. There's a risk there that we could under, you know, misunderstand it. But you know, in, a, in a very real way, this may jostle your theology a little bit, but God's a risk taker. Didn't he take a risk when he gave us free choice? And when he gave us free choice, he took a risk, and we know what that cost him. So in that, I mean, he didn't take a risk for no reason, but in that he condescends to give us his will in human language, how else could he have done it? By putting his will in human language, by putting his word in human language, any language group he had put it in, it would have had the same risk. So that's just a challenge for us to overcome, right? And then lastly, and I think this was the best thought that came to my mind, was even in my discussion in this email, and there was some back and forth, I caught myself, and the other person writing the email as well, dealing with it strictly in a solo kind of a thing. Shouldn't I be able to interpret Scripture all on my own? And the answer is yes and no. 
Yes, we can pick up our Bibles, and yes, God does speak to us. But at the same time, we are set in a body of believers. And there is immeasurable value in the feedback we get from one another, which is why I love emails like that, even ones that aren't entirely positive. I love it because it's how we respond. We get better by responding to one another. So those are just some thoughts I had this morning that I wanted to share before we got to the text. So feel free. You know, email me, text me, call me. You said this, but I appreciate that. So the Lord's table, let's get to our text, and the Lord's supper. Uh, verse 17 through 22, uh, Paul addresses the problem. Um, the Lord's table, which had been in Corinth part of a communal feast. Um, and as far as I know, every, every scholar studying the Corinthian letters is in agreement on this one, that what the Corinthians were doing, and it's cool, was they would get together for a big church-wide meeting like a potluck or a picnic, and they would all bring their food, and they would share that food, and then that would kind of just like morph into a worship service, and then they would do communion, and it all went together in a real cool package. But it had changed from that to a situation where everybody brought their own food and ate their own food to the exclusion of everybody else. And there were some people that were bringing just, you know, because there was extreme stratification of the wealth in the Corinthian church. Um, and there were some people that were bringing huge meals and just having a grand old time. And then right across the room, some guy has nothing to eat. And Paul's saying that does not work, right? Because that is the antithesis of what we're all about. So even though you may be doing that and you may be, you know, sliding communion in there somewhere in the process, no, you are not eating the Lord's table. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's table you eat. Moreover, some were not only bringing food, they were bringing, you know, wine or whatever, and they were getting sloshed. And that is no place, obviously, goes without saying, no place in a church function, let alone the Lord's table. And so Paul is saying, it is not, you may be doing it, but you're not doing it because you really have some very, very serious problems. And again, it was dividing the church. One can only imagine there were people that didn't approve of that, people trying to correct it. And then he makes this interesting statement, I just want to note this, where he says in verse 18, in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. We've talked a lot about that. In part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. He's not approving of the fact there's factions. He's saying it's inevitable. Anybody of believers, you get enough people together, you're going to have disagreements and things, and the way you handle those disagreements is indicative of where you are in your relationship with Christ. That, that as much as anything, indicates where you are spiritually is how you handle those disagreements. If you can work through them, that's a good sign. If you can't, that's not a good sign. That's what he's saying in those verses there, right? And then he says, verse 21, he talks about everybody eating their own food. And then he's verse 22, here's the solution that brought me. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you in this? Shall I praise you? No, I will not praise you. So Paul goes to the point of saying, you guys have basically ceased to function as a church. If you can't even get together and share the most basic expression of Christian worship, sharing in the elements of communion, you've just about ceased to function. And you're at a very, very critical, critical point. You need to address it. 
And so verse 23, this is the part of the passage we know so well. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. He's doing a couple of different things there. One, he's laying this out in a very traditional sense. And we talked about traditions last week. This is that transition from I got it and I'm passing it on to you. The three elements, I think we talked about this. There is the thing which is the tradition. There is the receiving it, the living of it, and then the passing of it on. So Paul's putting himself right in that, that venue, if you will, of Old Testament tradition being crossed on. But he's also saying this. This is like, for any that have been on an athletic team, it's just really gone downhill a long way. It's only a matter of time before the coach stands up. And what does the coach say? We are going back to fundamentals, right? Whatever the sport is, there's always those fundamental things. This is Paul saying, okay, for I received from the Lord that which I already passed on to you. Why is he saying it again? Because this is a church that needs to go back to the fundamentals. And I think that's something good for us to be mindful of. We always want to, preferably before things reach the critical stage, always be coming back to those basic fundamental things of who we are as the people of God. That's the fundamental thing, who we are as the people of God. Um, when, when people ask us about the church, we're talking to people you know, we've just met, and they ask us what kind of church this is. And I, I say, we're, we, we believe in the Bible. And to be quite honest, I get a little bit lame after that because I don't know what else to say. Because that's where we're at, and that's what we're built on. We're built on an understanding of Scripture speaking to us and doing the things that Scripture tells us about that. And I feel like adding anything to that like, if you want to know more than that, you just kind of come and try us out. Because that's who we are, and that's who we want to be, right? So going back to fundamentals, Paul says, I received from the Lord, and then he moves through the elements. And again, we're so familiar with this. The bread, which is broken, reminding us of the brokenness of his body. God forbid that we ever lose, lose track of the fact that everything we are is rooted in a man's broken body. And the cup that we share is a cup of blood that was offered. Very elemental and very visceral. Paul brings this church to a very visceral foundation point. You know, all the problems they've got, it would be so easy just to throw your hands up and go, this church doesn't stand a rat's chance. They are so messed up. They're still there. As far as I know, this may be the oldest church in Christendom because you can go to Corinth and you can find a church. And there has never been a time, even through those 400 years of Turkish occupation, where Islam was the law. Not really that much different than Afghanistan today. For 400 years. And they came out of it at the other side with their church and their faith intact. Now, it's a different expression of faith than we have, and that's cool. But it's the same elements. The elements and the understanding of what those elements represent that take us through the toughest of times. So Paul says, we're going to go back to the foundations. We're going to go back to the elements, right? And then he adds a little bit, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because I don't think we can claim to have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is unless we include in that understanding that he's coming back. He is returning. 
And that's essential for Paul to say here, because what kind of terminology is going to start showing up in the rest of the rest of the chapter? Words about judgment, words about discernment, words about penalty and reward. None of that has any relevance if Christ is not coming back. None of that. Everything is rooted in an understanding that he will return. That is as much a part of his person and character as the blood and the broken body. The reality of his return. So Paul has this warning. And then he gets into the corrective stuff. He's established these, base, these, these fundamentals, what we have to be doing. And in verses 27 through 32, which I want to put our greatest focus on this morning, he has several key phrases, several key phrases in the warning that he gives. For example, um, in verse 27, this may incredibly bless some of you. This may be like a burden lifted from your shoulders. Don't know. He said, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. How many have come to a church? Maybe you forgot that it was communion Sunday. You hadn't gone through sufficient self-examination, or maybe you just don't even do that. And you suddenly were impacted by the thought that, my God, if I eat the elements uh, as an unworthy person, I'm risking being judged. How many, don't raise your hand. How many have had that expression, right? I am simply not worthy to receive the elements right correct none of us are but i've got really good news and believe it or not the good news is rooted in grammar okay we got a grammar quiz i'm sure chris smith will get it right when the text says whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner is that an adjective or an adverb what do adjectives do a volunteer please they modify nouns. What do adverbs do? Modify actions. This is an adverb. What does that tell us? Paul's not talking about a self-evaluation of my person. Am I a worthy person? We've already established. The answer is no, I'm not. Paul is completely focused on the manner in which we receive the elements. So, if you're really stressed out, I'm not worthy, relax. You're, you're spot on. Now, recognizing that I may need to address that is real, but that's not the point here. The point here is what is the manner in which we receive the elements, and that's exactly the problem the Corinthians have. They were receiving the elements in a fashion that disrespected the elements of communion. So that's our concern. When we come to, when we come to a, that Sunday when we share the elements, the question we should be asking ourselves is, am I giving proper consideration to the elements? Because if I don't, I'm guilty of the elements. I become guilty of one who has broken the body and shed the blood and is still guilty of that. We're all guilty of it. But to say, if I, if I do not appreciate the elements for what they represent, I'm still in that guilty position, which I'm not otherwise. I'm in a position of being forgiven, right? So what is it, what's it that, what's in the issue here that we're supposed to be so concerned with? Well, look at the Corinthian situation. The very manner by which they approach the table, a willingness to neglect other people in the body of Christ, a willingness to totally disregard what Scripture says about drunkenness, it is that kind of an attitude that represents an unworthy manner. So we, we appreciate the elements for what they are, 
and we strive with all of our being and with a healthy dependence on the Holy Spirit to live our lives in a manner consistent with what the elements represent. The broken body, the shed blood, and the promised return. I love that promise of his return. If for no other reason is it really helps me, you know, I can, I can ask myself, is my life consistent with what it should be in light of his broken body and his shed blood? That's kind of a hard one to decipher. But if I ask myself, eh, do I want Jesus coming back while I'm doing what I'm doing right now? That's much easier to figure that way, right? That's going to be a straight up yes or no, right? You're not, I don't think you're ever going to ask yourself that question. Should I be doing this when Jesus comes? And go, I don't know, maybe. No, for no, that's not going to happen, right? We know, you know, straight up and down on that one, yeah, right? So he says then in verse 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the blood. This is where we get into really interesting terminology. Um, that literally means to test yourself. Let a man test yourself. Look at what you've been doing and ask yourself, is it consistent? Oh, I am so glad Jesus didn't come back yesterday, you know, especially when I was working on the boat. Yeah, um, those are the things we need to address in light of the reality of his return, right? And so, notice what he says, examine yourself, test yourself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Don't let that come between you and the elements, receiving the elements. Don't let that come between you. Deal with the issue. Deal with the issue so that you can receive the elements, right? And then verse 29 um, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's literally, that's, I mentioned, I said last week we get kind of legalistic in our reading. This is the place to get legalistic because that's what the word is. If we, if, we, if we receive the elements in a manner that is not reflective of what they actually mean, we do come into a, a position or a state of guilt, good old-fashioned legal guilt. If he does not judge the body rightly, does not judge this is the one where, like, the scholars are all over the place. What does it mean to judge the body rightly, okay? Um, there's there's one, one big body of, of, of teaching that says if we do not determine exactly what the elements are, and that's where we get into that whole thing of, well, is he with the elements? Is he in the elements? Are the elements a substance? That's not what he's talking about. Paul's whole concern here is what? The church the divisions in the church, the divisions that are being increased by the very way they're receiving the elements. I would suggest, and it's not, you can't definitively answer this question, but I would suggest the most reasonable answer is when he talks about judging the, judging the, um, the body rightly, he's talking about the body of Christ. If we fail to discern, if we fail to understand the body of Christ, and that this may be a place where our culture outdoes the Corinthian culture. Because our understanding of what the church is is so flippant. Our understanding of what the body of Christ is is so shallow. I, I love that class when, when I'm teaching students when we get to talk about the word ecclesia. Word called out. Because everybody knows that it means called out. And I love when I get to ask my students, okay, but what does that mean? Where does it come from? And, and then they, they don't know. And I think I've shared this before. It's one of those beautiful times in the New Testament when Jesus did what he loves to do, which is to reach out of the world of religious terminology. Jesus loved to do that. 
reach out of the world of religious, religious terminology and grab a wholly secular word. Because the word ecclesia, before Jesus used it to describe the church that is his body, before he, before he used that word that way, it was never used in a religious way. It was never used in a spiritual way. It was used to describe, of all things, if you want to talk secular, the Athens democracy. And when, the, when, and when the Athens democracy was functioning, the way it worked was, it was very, it was very chauvinistic. Every male Athenian was a citizen. Ladies, sorry. Um, it's a chauvinistic culture. What can I say? Um, every male was called out from whatever they were doing. Right? There was an issue. Something had to be decided by the city of Athens, right? And that's how the democracy worked. They would call all the citizens out. It was not optional mandatory to be there. So they would go to this place, big flat rock now, that was probably a building there in antiquity, and they would meet. And here's the amazing thing. When they met, when the ecclesia formed, that was Athens. And when the ecclesia spoke, Athens spoke. When they made a decision, Athens had made a decision. You know, you'll, a lot of our, of our you know, discussions, especially these days, we may say things like, well, the governor may feel this way, but that's not how the rest of us feel. Or the president may say this, but that's not how the rest. That didn't enter into their psyche at all. No, no. When the, when the ecclesia spoke, when that group spoke, Athens spoke. They had decided. That's the model Jesus reached out to to describe his church. And he said, this is my body. What is that saying? That is saying that when Jesus talks about the church being his body, his physical presence in the world, we kind of go, yeah, I got that. Point of theology, Jesus describes the churches. No, he means his body in this world. The only physical Jesus this world gets. How many people say, I'd believe in him if he'd only show himself to me? I would believe in Jesus if he would just appear right here. Well, actually not here right now. If you come to church on Sunday, you will see him. If you come to church or whatever other day of the week you meet, if you will come to the gathering of his believers, you'll see them. And that's not my idea. That's his idea. That's what he said. That leaves a bit of responsibility on us, doesn't it? It all reflects back on what he said about the elements. Right? Do we truly have the understanding that the depth of our being, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, this is a con constant one for me. Do I really get it, that we indeed are his body, right? And then he says this in verse 30, and this is where it gets kind of rough. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Um, we have no way of knowing if he meant this literally or figuratively. We don't know exactly know what was going on in Corinth. I would suggest it is meant as much figuratively as it is meant literally, because when we are neglectful of the body, we become weak and sickly in our faith. I know very few, very few, and I, I can't say none, but I'm inclined to, very few people that have a dynamic Christian life and a dynamic Christian witness that are not organically connected to a body of believers. It just doesn't work. So to fail to judge the body, to fail to see oneself as, as part of an organic body of faith results in a spiritual weakness, a spiritual sickness, and eventually spiritual sleep, 
so that we are completely insensitive to what is going on around us. So then he offers the correction. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment and the remaining matters I will settle when I come. Um, I find great encouragement in those last few verses. You know, the Corinthians had something good going. Had a good idea. We'll all get together. We'll share some food. We'll have communion, slide right into a worship service. Evidently started out great. And then it went south. It stopped working. So Paul said, just stop doing it. Right? He doesn't say that to any other church in the New Testament. If it's working for you guys, just keep, keep doing it. Right? If it's not working, stop. He de- I'm so glad that God doesn't give us this absolutely rigid form that we all have to follow. Every church is supposed to, you know, cookie cutter. No. People ask me, why are there so many churches? Why does Baskin Robbins have 31 flavors? We're different. Different things, you know, connect with us emotionally and personally. And that's how God designed us. So it's not at all necessary that we all look the same and function the same. Yeah, there are certain core things that we value and we treasure and we hold, right? Those things are absolutely essential, right? The table, the Lord's table points to those essentials, right? That table points to the sufficiency of Christ, not mine. At the same time, it gives me an occasion to be thankful, always to be thankful and to focus, right? But the way we go about it, the, the details of it, I think it's so great that God is like, you guys work that out. You work out how you want to do it. You want to send the cup around? You want to all come to the front? Do it in a way that works for you, that allows you to function in a way that represents him. Aren't you glad we have that kind of a God who gives us that freedom and that choice at the same time holds us accountable for the end results? That's That's what we're about. Father, I thank you, Lord, that in this passage that we sometimes become, again, so familiar with that we run the risk of being um, complacent. Um, And then at the same time, Father, I know there are some that are so fearful of it out of a very healthy respect for you, Lord, that they sometimes hold back when they shouldn't hold back. Father, the communion elements remind us of that which is essential, Lord. I pray, Father, we'll never lose that. We'll never lose track of the essentials. And I pray, Father, it's not just when we're we're together in worship, sharing the elements, Father, but as we go through our week, day in and day out, Father, we will be mindful of the price paid for us, the broken body, the shed blood, of the reality. Father, let us live our lives, I pray, with the very real expectation of your, of, your, of your son's return, Lord. Let us live our lives that way. And at the same time, Father, let us live a life of joyous celebration, Father. We want to be seen, Father, by this community at people who enjoy worshiping, enjoy rejoicing in the goodness of our very, very good God. Father, I know if we can simply do that, if we can simply do that, Father, we will make a difference in the lives of those around us. Help us, we pray to that end, in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.